0: Hi, everyone. I'm Janet. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. Really happy to see all of you here after not being here for a week. So, we have a lot of new people. So, it's the perfect chapter. We're going to be working on the chapter five, How It Works. It's on page 58 of the big book. I love the title, right? It tells us how it works. So, first, it tells us it works, right? There really is a solution. Then, it tells us it's work. It's going to be work, but it's going to tell us exactly how. So this chapter picks up on step three. And because there's some new people here, we'll do a quick, you know, kind of um, summary of what we've done the past few weeks. So step one, we admitted we were powerless over food and our lives had become unmanageable or powerless over alcohol or powerless over whatever, which means that we had an absolute inability to put down the substance, no matter how great the necessity or wish. And if you're struggling with that, we have lots of podcasts, grab one of us, happy to help. So we admit we're powerless. Our lives don't work. We can't stop. Then step two says, we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves, who most of us choose to call God, or you can call your higher power, but the book refers to as God um, can restore us to sanity. So we come to believe that, that yeah, that there is this being out there who really cares about us and could restore us to sanity. And when I was thinking about this chapter, I was thinking how um, a lot of times people say, oh, don't worry, God will always make everything work out for, for the good. And I was thinking, that's not really true. And that's not what the book tells us. Our book tells us that that's really a conditional promise that God isn't a genie or Santa Claus that we just snap our fingers and he makes everything work out for the good. My job is to trust him and surrender my life to him. And then he will remove the obsession and make everything work out for good. So let's dive in on page 58. It starts out by saying, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Well, any addict worth her salt will say, I'm one of those rarely. I'm one of these people it doesn't work for, right? And if that's you, let's look at the next line. Those who don't recover, or people who can't or won't completely do this program. So basically, if we do this work and follow their path, not my path, not your path, but the path outlined in this book, we are guaranteed to succeed um, if we do this. And it says, who are the people who don't do this? And it's people who aren't honest. I mean, they say that right off the bat. So basically they're saying, look, guys, you can do everything right. You can make your inventories, make your phone calls, go to a hundred meetings. If you are not committed to rigorous honesty, you may as well take a big black Sharpie and write the words, keep out God across your heart, because God absolutely won't coexist with dishonesty. So that's what it tells us right away, like anyone can recover if they do this work. And basically, the number one thing that's going to trip you up is dishonesty. So we have to make a commitment to being honest. Now, it says um, that some people are incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Well, a lot of us, right, me included, tried to use that loophole that Well, I'm incapable of being honest, but they're talking about someone who's medically incapable, who doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. Um, I was able to be honest, I just didn't want to be honest because the price was too high. But when we take a real first step, no price is too high because we just can't stand living the way that we're living. So it says, okay, this program works if you thoroughly follow it and you have to be honest. And it tells us you're going to get directions in this book and there's stories. And the disclo- the stories disclose what we used to be like, what happened and what we're like now. What we used to be like, train wrecks living on self-will. What happened? We encountered God our loving creator, and developed a relationship with him. And what we're like now, productive citizens who no longer obsess about food or alcohol or whatever our substance was. So I would say in a general rule, what's um, helpful is when we're sharing our stories, we want to spend just enough time on what we were like to have people identify. So someone says, yep, She's one of us, he's one of us, I'm just like them. So just enough to get an identification and then spend the bulk of the time on what happened on the solution, right? Imagine going to a doctor and then you've got a half hour visit and the doctor spends the first 23 minutes talking about the illness and its symptoms and all that stuff. And then spends just a few minutes on how to get better. I know I would leave there feeling, uh, what, what, you know, what do I do now? So I think um, when we're telling our stories, yeah, we want people to know that we used to eat like maniacs. We used to drink uncontrollably, but what happened? We encountered the living God that he reached down into our hearts, rewired it and yanked out the obsession. That's what we should talk about. That's what's going to get people excited to do this um, and what we're like now, that our lives work. Um, So then a requirement to work the steps. Sometimes people think, well, I'm entitled to a sponsor just because I walked in the door, but that's not what the big book says. It says, if you have decided you want what we have, and what do we have? a spiritual awakening or spiritual experience based on these steps. Basically God coming in doing a renovation job on our hearts so that we become less selfish, um, less self-centered and more and more like our creator who is not selfish and self-centered. So if you want that, Oh, and, and he throws in the mix, removing the food obsession or the alcohol obsession or the drug obsession So if you want that and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then, and I say then and only then, are you ready to take certain steps? Um, I spoke to someone this weekend who said, yeah, I'm not willing to make a food plan in advance. And I said, "Well, then tell your sponsor to she should be working with someone else because it's not going to work for you we have to be willing to do whatever it takes to get better. It says, then you are ready to take certain steps. And it says that some of these we balked. Well, of course we did, right? Who of us wants to do all this hard work? But balking doesn't disqualify us, right? Sometimes when the alarm goes off, we balk at having to get up and go to work, but we do it anyway because we know if we don't, we won't get our paycheck and we won't won't be able to make our mortgage payments. So it's okay to balk as long as we do it anyway. And it says, we thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we couldn't. And they say, we beg you. Imagine this, the hundred or so people who put this book together are begging the people who are going to read this book, be fearless and thorough from the very start. Um, let go of your old ideas. And they remind us we're dealing with alcohol, alcohol or food. And look how they describe it. Now, alcohol or food are common nouns described as cunning, baffling, and powerful. Like really did a, did, you know, a piece of cake ever sit there and plan how it's going to get me to eat it? Well, no, of course not. You know, did, did a glass of wine ever jump into an alcoholic's hand and overpower him so that he had to drink it? No, but we say there's there's a force, like a kind of a negative spiritual force behind this illness and it's stronger than we are. And that is why we need a higher power. It says without help, it is too much for us, but thank God for that, but there is one who has all power That one is God. And then they say, may you find him now. And they tell us half measures avail us nothing, right? Anyone who's a school teacher here will tell you, if you get a 50% on a test, you get an F. Half measures avail us nothing. Um, And we're at the turning point. And what do we do? It says, page 59, we asked his protection and care with complete abandon. So remember, um, when I've talked about step two, I talked about going on a treasure hunt for God and how there's clues in the book. On page 45, it gives us our first clues about God, right? Um, the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. So if this power is going to solve my problem, it has to have a consciousness. It has to be smart, has to be powerful, And it has to care about me. Otherwise, why would he or it bother trying to solve my problem? And now we know two more things about God. He will protect us and he will care for us. But again, we have to ask with complete abandon. So again, remember, God's not a genie. So it's like, dear God, I'm going to go out and rob banks, protect me and care for me complete abandon, meaning I abandon myself completely to him. And then it says, here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. Um, the first nine steps, unblock our channel to God. Step 10, we unblock what's what cluttered the channel from our day. Step 11, we fill the channel by praying and meditating and getting filled like I think of it as like fuel for a car um, by God and step 12 the channel of grace overflows onto others so it says okay once you hear all this many of us exclaimed what an order I can't go through with this this is like too much work and they say don't be discouraged you're not going to be perfect Um, it says we claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection Now, let me clarify something. Sometimes people say this means um, they'll go off their food plan and they'll say, well, it's progress, not perfection. You know, I used to binge twice a week and now I only binged once a week. And I would say like in AA, no alcoholic could walk in and say, I used to binge five times, drink five times a week, but this week I only got drunk twice. That's progress. Thumbs up. People would say, sit down, And be quiet. And so, what they're talking about is spiritual progress. So, what does that mean? So, that means yes, we still get resentments, but instead of being resentful and holding on to it for three days, I can resolve it in one day, and then half a day, and then three hours, and then maybe 15 minutes. And then maybe I notice that the things that used to bother me, a lot of them don't bother me anymore. Because God has entered in my life in a way that's miraculous and removed my obsession and given me a great sense of purpose. So we grow along spiritual lines. But of course, I still get resentful sometime. But this program gives me a way of resolving it. So I don't have to sit in it for three days anymore. And then um, it says, okay, three pertinent ideas make clear. And I think these A, Bs, and Cs, the ABCs here, are really critical for someone who's struggling to believe that God will help them. So let's go through them. Um, so first, do you believe you're an alcoholic or a compulsive eater and can't manage your own life? Well, generally a person will say yes, otherwise you know, they wouldn't be spending their Monday nights sitting on a zoom meeting, they'd be like watching. I don't even know what's on on Monday nights. They'd be watching something on TV or Netflix. Um, so yes, I'm an addict. I can't manage my own life. B that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism or compulsive eating. Yes. I've tried, you know, people say I've gone to Weight Watchers. I've done whatever. No human power can help me. I get it. Then C, and here's where we get stuck. So we're going to break C down into like um, discrete parts that God could and would if He were sought. So here's the first thing. And again, if you're sponsoring someone, this is a good way to help your sponsees through. Um, do you believe that God can restore other people to sanity? And if they've been going to meetings any length of time, of course they'd say, well, yes, I've seen him do it for other people. Yes, I believe God can do it for other people. Great, okay, next question. Do you believe God could for you if he wanted to? He may not want to, but could he if he wanted to? And if you believe that he could for other people, You kind of have to believe he could for you, even though he may not want to. And that's where a lot of people get stuck. It's like, well, he could if he wanted to, but he won't for me. So that's God could, but would he? And that's why a lot of people say no. And I have found that there's generally five reasons why someone would say that God would not restore them to sanity. So number one is, um well, I caused this illness. This isn't something like cancer where the person couldn't help it. It's my fault. We can debate whether or not it really is someone's fault, whether they caused it or were born with it, but let's just go with it that it is your fault. You caused it, okay? Let's assume you really did. So here's my analogy. Let's say I'm walking, la-di-da, trying to cross the street, And I'm looking at my cell phone and I get hit by a Mack truck and it breaks both my legs. And an ambulance comes to take me to the hospital so that an orthopedic surgeon can set my legs. Am I going to say, ambulance driver, no, don't take me to the doctor. Don't take me to the hospital. It's my fault because I was looking at my cell phone. So yeah, no, just pass me by and leave me in the road with with broken legs. No, we don't do that. Um, We say, take me, Um, but suddenly, for some reason, when it comes to God, we get all noble and say, well, I don't want to bother God for something I created. And to that, I say, bother God. It's okay. Just like we would bother the orthopedic surgeon in the hospital. Um, Second reason someone might say is, I've tried it so many times before and it hasn't worked. And to that, I again would pick up my cell phone and say, You know, so many times I try, yeah, I just did it again. I try to take pictures by pushing the on off key. And let's say I tried it for mm, six and a half years and could never take one single picture. And then one day someone comes along and says, Janet, you're pushing the wrong button. You're pushing the on off button here, this one on the side. This is the picture bud- button. Suddenly I can take pictures. So it doesn't matter whether this is your first meeting or your thousand and first meeting. If you've been using the on off button instead of the picture button, get with someone who can show you the right buttons, get willing to go to any lengths and suddenly you'll be able to recover. Um, The third reason is someone might say, I've done this really bad thing and I said, That's fine. So did every single founder of AA. That's why there's a nine step in this program. So we can make amends. Um, The fourth reason is similar to that, but someone might say, well, it's not that I've done a bad thing. I'm just not worthy. I have this, people have this shame, um, not about anything in particular, but just feeling unworthy. So someone will say, I'm not worthy. And to that, I would say, well, you have two options. The first is you could like spend $20,000 in therapy with a therapist to try to convince you that you're worthy and PS, it won't work. Um, Or two, I will tell you straight up to your face, you are not worthy. And then people usually like, what? I'm like, yeah, you're not worthy. And neither am I, and neither was I, and neither was anyone who got recovered. And if you look through the big book, You will not find the the word worthy in there. That is not a requirement for getting help. Willingness is. Willing to go to any length. So it doesn't matter if someone has told us all our lives that we'll never amount to anything. If we have guilt over something bad we've done. If we just feel shame because of maybe abuse that's been heaped on us through no fault of ours, if we've done some things that we just feel really bad about, um, or if we just have this sense that, you know, it'll work, it can work for everyone else, but not for me, because I don't deserve it. I say to you, that doesn't matter. Worthiness is 100% irrelevant. Only willingness counts. So now you can all go to Aruba with the 10 grand that you saved on therapy. Um, Worthiness doesn't matter. Okay, and the last thing, it says that God could and would if he were sought. Someone might say, well, I'm not seeking him. And that's the only case where I would say, you might be right, then God might not help you. So in that case, I would ask the person to write down very specifically what they think it means to seek God And what of those things they're not doing? So let's say someone says, I think to seek God, I have to spend some time in prayer and meditation with him every morning, and I'm not willing to do that. And I would say to that person, you're right. Yeah, God, yeah, this program doesn't say that God will restore you to sanity because you're not seeking him. You're not doing what's required. But usually... I would find out of all those reasons, it's generally the fourth, that people just feel they're not worthy. And I say like, it doesn't matter. None of us are worthy. I did some like really awful, terrible things. I like took a razor blade and faked a mugging, faked a rape, you know, like I did like psycho things. It doesn't matter. Once I got willing, God got to work on my heart. So there we are. So it says, once we re- believe that, that we're alcoholics or compulsive eaters and can't manage our own lives, we believe that no human power could help us and that God could and would if he were sought and we become willing to seek him. Then it says, being convinced, convinced of what? That God would restore us to sanity. We're at step three. And what do we do? Step three is about how exactly to turn our will and lives over to God as we understand him and says, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to turn our will and our lives over to God? And then I generally ask someone to read the next two paragraphs out loud in the first person. So Katie, if you could do that, and I may interrupt you a couple of times.
1: Okay. Um... The first requirement. Thank you. The first requirement is that I be convinced that my life run on self will can hardly be a success. On that basis, I am almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. I'm going to continue. Yeah, keep going. Most people try to live. I try. I try <laughs> to live. It's I okay. try to live myself. Self. It's hard to do, right? It's hard yeah.
0: to
1: do. <laughs> I am an act like an actor. I want to run the whole show. I am forever trying to arrange the lights, the scenery, and the rest of the players my only my own way. If my arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as I wish, the show would be great. Everybody, including me, would be pleased. And really, like- isn't that all we care about ourselves being pleased? <laughs> Okay, go ahead. Life would be wonderful. In trying to make these arrangements, I may sometimes be quite virtuous. I may be kind, considerate, patient, generous, even modest and self-sacrificing. On the other hand, I may be mean, egotistical, selfish, and dishonest. But as with most humans, I am more likely to have varied traits. Yeah, keep going. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. I begin to think life doesn't treat me well, right? So enter self pity. Mm-hmm. Life doesn't treat me right. Go ahead. I decide to exert myself more. I become, on the next occasion, still more demanding or gracious, as the case may be. Still, the play does not suit me. Admitting I may be somewhat at fault, I am sure that other people are more to blame. I become angry, indignant, self-pitying. What is my basic trouble? Am I not really a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? Boom,
0: that is our basic trouble. We are self-seekers
1: even when trying to be kind. Go ahead and finish, please. Am I not a victim of the delusion that I can wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I only manage well? Is it not evidence to all the rest of the players that these are the things that I want? And do not my actions make each of them wish to retaliate, snatching all they can get out of the show? Am I not even in my best moments a producer of confusion rather than harmony? So, am, uh, so
0: here's what sel- what um, a third step really is. And by the way, if you are ever um, having a bad day, just like really frustrated at someone um, and angry. I have found for myself, it's really helpful to take these two paragraphs and read, it, read them out loud in the first person. I once um, called someone because my family wasn't doing the right thing. Um, and she took these two paragraphs and read them out loud, inserting my name in it. And it was like a dagger to my heart but a bomb to my soul because it helped me to see what the problem was. It was me wanting things to go my way. So here's what a third step is. Um, Normally, and here in a nutshell, here's what it is. Normally we have goals and the goals may be really good goals. So like, let's say having my children go to church. Um, I mean, no one would say that that's a bad goal. However, it's my goal and it's radically different than having a goal of doing God's will, just doing God's will. So if my goal is to raise children who go to church, I'm going to raise them, take them to church and all that. But if they don't go to church, which right now, you know, it's hit or miss because they're in college. Um, If that were my goal to raise church going children, I would get angry, I would, or scared, or manipulative, or some other um, unhealthy emotion because I wasn't achieving my goal. But if my goal is simply to do God's will, I may raise them the exact same way, right? Take them to church every Sunday, talk to them about the value of church. But if they don't go, I'm way less likely to get angry frustrated, upset, controlling, demanding, sad, because my goal isn't to raise church-going kids. My goal is to be able to stand before God and say, I lived my life trying to do what I thought you wanted me to. So in other words, it's like a paradigm shift in our life from doing things to get results we want versus just doing what we think is God's will and leaving the results up to him. So now I don't even ask if they've gone to church, um, partly because I know the answer, unfortunately, but it's it doesn't matter. I mean, I have my preference, but a preference is way different than a demand. So again, it's a paradigm shift in the way we live, where we just live our lives doing what we think God wants us to, and we trust him with the outcome. We're out of the results business. Um, So then they go ahead and they talk about um, our actor, meaning us, is self-centered. And it compares us to the retired businessman who lolls in the Florida sunshine in the winter, complaining of the sad state of the nations, a minister who sighs over the sins of the 20th century, politicians and reformers who are sure all would be utopia if the rest of the world would only behave, the outlaw safecracker who thinks society has wronged him, and the alcoholic who has lost all and is locked up. What do all these people have in common? They may be fine, decent people, well, probably except for the safe cracker, Um, but they're looking outside of themselves. They're saying, look at the sad state of the nations, other people. Look at the sins of the 20th century. Look at um, those other people who aren't behaving and stopping the world from being utopia. A third set gives us, in a way, tunnel vision. I just focus on what I'm supposed to be doing. And I compare it to swimming in one of those like lap pools that has the lanes marked off. My job is to look at God and swim toward him. I'm not to let things from other lanes come into my lane and I'm not to veer off into other people's lanes. So I'm not to look at what other people are doing. Obviously, unless I'm a mom of small kids, I have an obligation to make sure they don't play in traffic. I have an obligation to raise them right. But beyond that, you know, it's like my kids now are 20 and 21, they are raised, they're raised. I don't, you know, it's not my job to raise them. And it's certainly not my job to raise my husband or, you know, my mom or my friends or my sponsees, you know, my job, is to do God's will and to not go in another lane. And the future is generally another lane. Not to say we shouldn't have a 401k, but when we're worried about the future, we're in another lane. So, Okay, so it tells us we have to be concerned just with focusing on what we think God wants us to do. And then they continue on page 62 selfishness and self-centeredness that we think is the root of our troubles love that if um i drew a little tree in my big book and i drew a tree and i drew below the ground the roots we don't see the roots right they're under they're underground so the selfishness and self-centeredness aren't always seen but we see the fruit and what are the fruits of this illness resentments fears and harms to others so they say you know, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate that our troubles are basically of our own making. Now it says basically. So I would never say that, you know, a child who's molested or a woman who's raped at gunpoint, that those troubles were of their making. But most of our troubles, it's because, we tried to get people to do something that we wanted them to do and they didn't like it. So it says our troubles arise out of our own making and we are extreme examples of self-will run riot, though we usually don't think so. We just run on self-will. We want what we want and we want it yesterday, right? And above everything, so number one, we have to be rid of our selfishness. And it says it actually kills us if we don't, our selfishness, and God makes it possible. And we can't get rid of our selfishness without his help, even if we have moral and philosophical convictions. So even if we're like religious people, moral people, philosophical people, we can't live up to our convictions on our own. Why? Because remember, our problem isn't lack of a good moral code. It's lack of power. So it says we had to have God's help. And then they get down to brass tacks. Boom. This is the how and why of it. Numero uno. We have to quit playing God. Why? Because it's disrespectful. No, because it doesn't work. See, this is a very practical program. It just doesn't work to play God, to try and make people do things I want. So one, we quit playing God. Two, we decided God's going to be in charge, right? I could quit playing God and decide to let, I don't know, my husband be in charge or, you know, some guru be in charge and it says no, God. And it says God is our director. He is the principal, he is we are his agents. I love that. It's like he's got he's got a plan, an uber plan for this world for us. And my job is to be his agent. But it's more than that. He's not just some impersonal principle. He is the father and we are his beloved sons and daughters. He says most good ideas are simple and this is simple. And then page 63, the third step promises. When we sincerely t- took such a position, the position of God is my father. I'm his agent, I'm his beloved child. All sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. See, we don't have to worry about a recession coming. We have an employer with a capital E. And being all powerful, he provided what we needed if. So here's a conditional promise. God will give us what we need if we do two things. A, stay close to him, right? Prayer, meditation. B, perform his work well. Take actions that I think He would want me to. And if we do this, it says we become less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. We look to see what we can contribute. And then it says, as we felt new power flow in, remember we start getting power, not at step one, at step two, page 46 tells us, as soon as we admit the possible existence of God, we begin to be infused, right? Like an infusion with a new sense of power. We start getting power in step two. Thank God, right? Because that's our problem, lack of power. Now we get more power flowing in, right? Not from me, from God. Peace of mind. And that's something we all needed. We still, we could face life successfully. We're conscious of his presence. We become aware that there really is a God. And he really cares about us. And we begin to lose our fear. Our fears don't all go away now, but they start diminishing of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. And then um, we'll just finish up quickly with the third step prayer. Um, So it says, here's our third step prayer. We offer ourselves to God. God, take the raw material of me and build with it and do with it whatever you want. I'll be a lump of clay in your hands. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, right? It's like we're in bondage to ourselves that I may better do thy will, right? Because if I'm so worried about myself, I'm not able to focus on God and what his will for me is. Take away my difficulties. Why? So I have like a nice carefree life, Uh uh-uh. So that victory over them makes me a witness to those I would help of three things. God's power. He's strong enough to do this. God's love. He loves us enough to do this. And God's way of life. That this is a formula that can be duplicated. And then we end with the prayer to do his will always. And we're sure at this point, we have to make sure that we trust him, that belief that we believe he can and will restore us to sanity. And then we abandon ourselves, right? Think of the word abandoned, like an abandoned building is empty. We abandon ourselves. I'm empty of myself because I'm all his.